1: Show business me, it felt like you're on the outside of a big room and you walk around the outside and keep pushing and keep pushing and somewhere there'll be a door that'll pop open. And when the door does pop open, go in and then don't lean on the wall. When, when, the, when the magic door opens, go in, keep moving forward and just keep taking work, any work that any work that, that you can, take it, stay in the room and just keep, keep going forward.
0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I hope you're doing great this week. It's been a phenomenal time here in New York City for the New York Comedy Festival where we did our live Industry Standard at the Stand Comedy Club, and it was incredible. Packed. You guys came out in droves and so supportive. It was so responsive with my... Special guest Dean Edwards from Saturday Night Live and opening comedian Nick Lytle was fantastic too. The stories, the emotions, the applause. It was just intense, definitely the best live show that I've ever done as long as I've been doing this series. I'm so grateful to the owners of The Stand. The staff there, incredible, and also incredibly thankful to the people who run the New York Comedy Festival. And I'm talking about Caroline's Comedy Club with Caroline Hirsch, Andrew Fox, and the legendary comedy producer and booker. Of the new york comedy festival in carolines lewis Ferranda thank you thank you thank you if you hear a little noise in the background it's because it's always noisy in new york city cars garbage trucks police vehicles ambulances you name it but hopefully we'll both be able to get through this i also want to thank all of you for supporting the show and if you need to reach me you can do so at barry Katz at twitter or Instagram, and I'll be glad to get back to you. And we got a great show for you today, part two of Kevin Rooney, along with special guests this episode, writers, producers, Ron Zimmerman and Jim Valley. You're in for a treat. It's going to be very inspirational. And when I think of Kevin Rooney, I think of a guy who created an incredible career from the humblest beginnings. We're talking about a guy whose father lost his education money in the stock market worked putting tar on roads and as a janitor in an elementary school and lived in a room his dad built in the back of their barn. This is a guy that went on to win two Emmy Awards and work with some of the greatest people of my generation, including Billy Crystal, Jay Leno, Judd Apatow, and Dennis Miller. And ever since he knew he was funny and wanted to be funny, he set his sights on his goals and that was to be somebody who made a mark in the business. And according to longtime bartender at the Improv, Eddie Burke, Kevin had the best Johnny Carson Tonight Show set he'd ever seen. And this is a guy who'd seen hundreds and hundreds of sets. But not only was Kevin a tremendous stand-up comic, but a great writer and actor. But the thing that strikes me most is that even though he had adversity in the beginning of his life, He worked through it and did great work, enough to be recognized by incredibly great people. Not only that, networks took notice, and he did countless sitcoms for Fox, ABC, and NBC. And not only that, he was recognized by giving a deal with Castle Rock, who produced Seinfeld while it was number one on the air on NBC. It's not a coincidence, this guy figured out a way to create great relationships. Keep great relationships, continue those great relationships during the lows, the highs and everywhere in between. But most importantly, one of the things that always strikes me about him is working with geniuses. And when you get a chance to work with the people he's worked with and do things with them that raise the bar, even though their bar is so high, you really have to take notice. And what strikes me about him is how he developed and created with Dennis Miller, the comedy rants on Dennis Miller Live, which to me were some of the greatest pieces of scripted comedy that I've ever had a chance to see delivered on any stage. And so if you can figure out how to overcome the adversity that the world gave you, work hard, deliver great work. Get recognized by some of the greatest people in your industry for John, regardless of whether you get fired, you get hired, keep moving forward in a strong positive way, doing that extraordinary work where you're recognized by everyone in your group in your profession, regardless of how many setbacks there are. You keep pushing, keep moving, and those relationships that you have stand the test of time and take your career to the next level. And I can guarantee you, if you figure out how to do that, you'll have the kind of career that Kevin Rooney has
2: Barry Katz. Back
3: in the house. 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 Let's do this.
0: I want to know for our audience, in the 80s, in the boom, tell me three people who you had the greatest reverence and respect for, besides Dennis Miller.
1: Well, well, I didn't have, I thought Dennis was hilarious. We had a good time together. But Jay, I really respected. Leno. Uh, Robert Klein. I really of respect course. Robert Klein. And, uh, well, I'd never really worked with him or knew him, but uh, Lenny Bruce was somebody I really, yeah. Got it. And then today, besides Chappelle,
0: who are the comedians you see that even you, with sometimes a cynical eye, right. can look at and say, holy fuck, that guy is really doing
1: something special? Or girl. Or girl. Well, um, Dana Gould, oh, yes. I think he's he's hilarious, a genius. Dave Chappelle, we just mentioned, who's fantastic. Jim Gaffigan, I've been watching all of Jim Gaffigan. Uh, we saw some other guys. I think Gary Goleman's really funny. Yeah, he's really. I remember, he, you know, remember I did a thing with him. Yes, we did something together when I yeah. represented him. Right, we wrote a little pilot with Gary. I always liked Gary, and thought he was funny, but he has really come. Uh, just gangbusters, his latest special there at the Big Depression, the Great Depression. Really funny, great joke writing, and uh, a great point of view. So those are guys, and uh, I don't know who else. Kennison I thought was hilarious, of course. But yeah, uh, Dana, really funny
0: when you're working the clubs here in Hollywood were there ever people who you saw were going on before you and you're like oh Jesus Christ how am I going to follow that guy
1: yeah there were uh, who were those people that you hated following I've blotted them out <laughs> <laughs> Robin you don't want to follow Robin of course you don't want to follow big stars because they the audience will have gotten what they wanted you know they get a big star they go I got what I wanted I watched a big star and he's done and so you know Who else could there possibly be? But there were people who were very powerful acts that were hard to follow. And, uh, you know, people with points of view that were solid and uh, kind of uh, hard to to, to get in behind. You know, their point of view just was too strong to push off the stage when you got on. So there were people that thought, oh man, that's gonna be tough. But mostly uh, you just wanted to get the audience before it got drained. Like, I didn't want to follow Charles Fleischer. He was doing 25 minutes of Mo leads. Charles Fleischer was the voice of Roger Rabbit. Gilbert, you didn't want to follow at Gilbert all. No. Gilbert Yeah. Kevin Meaney. Kevin Meaney, of course. Kevin Meany was hilarious. And his point of view, that's what I mean by the point of view, it was so strong and pleasant and also very nice. You know, there was a guy, uh, Mark Roberts. He created Mike and Molly. Yes. I was we working with him in Seattle once. Uh, he was opening for me. And it was always hard for me, because he's like a really pleasant uh, bald guy, like a little, little bit. Ch- it was a little, at that time, He was a little bit chubby. And the audience loved him. He was a really pleasant guy. Then I come out, this angry, bitter, <laughs> bald guy. So the bald, the bald jokes were already sold down. And I was, I was the awful guy. So and he got to do all. He was first, so he got to do all the Seattle jokes, you know, all the stuff about the Seattle. And uh, it was really hard to follow him. Oh Scheidner, you can follow Scheidner. Rich Scheidner. Rich Scheidner, I love Rich. He'd, he'd ring him. He'd ring him out. Yeah, he would. He would get the audience and just ring him by the neck. Do you mind? Uh, Who? <laughs> oh, Al Jolson. Do you mind? Do you mind if I bring your uh, your friends? No, your come friends? in, boys. Jimmy First Bentley, of all, Emmy winner for uh, Arrested Development. Oh yeah. And Ron Zimmerman. Both these guys work on action, which is a hilarious show.
0: Well, you, yeah. This is the first show I ever got to get an executive producer. Yeah, you got about. your
3: name on it. I've had my name on the same screen with you, which is like, you know, an amazing. Was,
0: but To me, that show was the proudest I've ever been to be involved because I didn't deserve to be an executive producer on that show, but they gave me the credit and I wasn't going to turn it down. No, man. And I was there with you guys and Joel Silver and Don Rio and the late Chris Thompson sure. and the late Ted Demme. And sure. Right. and you guys and it was just an incredible show it's it to this, was, to it this was, day it's the greatest show i ever worked it's on it's
3: my favorite, it's certainly one of my favorite shows that I ever worked on uh, and, uh, and uh, Ron what, what, do you have any um, thoughts on Action? <laughs> I am most proud of the last
2: episode of Action that Jimmy and I wrote because we were up the Weinstein's ass yeah. before and in 1999, we did the. If you remember, the last episode was about two horrible misogynists. I mean, it was it was the it was the Me Too wow. movement.
0: And I, I, I remember something, and you tell me if this is the last episode where Jay's character dies. And you already knew the show was canceled and it said time that wasn't of, the last that wasn't the one time of the dip. last
2: episode was this one where We changed the name to the Rothstein brothers. That's
0: right. Right. right
2: And and there there the deal was the story was that that the writer of of uh, the, the star of Jay Moore's characters Movie had actually sold it to the Rothstein brothers <laughs> Before he sold it to Jay, so he had to buy it back, and the only way he could do it was to sacrifice his vice president, who was a child, a, a, a little girl, child star, Eliana
0: Douglas, <laughs> who rode the elephant in the movie. Yes, the <laughs>
2: Elephant Princess. Right. Yeah. That was the name of the show. So he had and
0: to give her to the wine He had team. to
2: give her for one night. <laughs> one night and she came out of the house the next morning and her clothes were torn up and she, <laughs> she had bite marks on her I mean it was it was
3: hideous it was well, the way we wrote these guys remember they, they, we, we did we did a restaurant scene who played them who we were the actors that played Stu Pankin uh, played one of them i can't remember the other one Mostel's son oh and josh Mostel. okay yeah yeah josh Mostel and and uh, and stu pankin uh and uh Ron and i wrote a bit where they were eating uh yeah like 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 the palms and ribs and they were licking sauce off of each other <laughs> <laughs> oh you left some corn behind your ear let me go that's delicious that funny, yeah but yeah it was, and and and, and I, you know, I think, you know, I don't think it helped us in the industry that we wrote that particular episode because, these, you know, we said, oh, yeah, these guys are pigs. And that was the great thing about action because it was originally supposed to be on HBO. Right. That's and Joel right, Silver it was based on Joel Silver. Yes. And Joel Silver, uh, for whatever reason, didn't want to do it at HBO. And we took it to Fox. I think it was Doug Herzog. Right. It was Doug Herzog. Yeah. And Doug Herzog, who, you know, hot off of this, he goes, yeah, I'll put this show on. And, uh, you yeah, know, I'd never been on a show that got, you know, reviews like this. I remember
0: something that you might not know. Yeah. Doug Herzog told me that for the audience, just so they know, pilots are made. And then in the middle of May, sometimes at the end of April, the network gets together with the president and the person above the president, a uh, chairman of the network and all the executives. And they watch the pilots and they decide which ones they are going to pick up and which ones they aren't and so they played the show action and peter chernan was in the room and he says uh doug funny show great but we can't put that on the air and doug stood up and he slammed his hand on the table and he said you brought me here to make shows like this if you're not going to let me put this on the air then send me back to new york with my other job And he fought for it and he got the show on the air. But unfortunately, it still got canceled after 13 episodes. episodes. No, 13 episodes. (laughs) Uh, We, you know, you know, I, yes,
3: but, you know, but that was all Chris Thompson. Chris Thompson wrote that pilot. And that was, you know, that and to this day, I think it's. Probably the best pilot I've ever seen. I mean, you know, and and, and he got that out and then, you know, put together a writing staff with, you know, me and Ron and uh, Don Rio, who's amazing. We've all worked for Don. He's the amazing Don Rio. Thank you, Don. Thank you for our houses, Don. We appreciate it, Don. Don. Thank you. say thank you, Don. Thank you, Don.
2: Don. I remember (laughs)
0: the first time that Don met Jay Moore and Jay Moore was always a guy who had no filter. So Don's sitting in the director's chair. And for those of you who don't know Don Rio, it's like you're walking up to Gleason if Gleason were a executive producer only and not, on, you know, it's right. just that kind of guy who it's like approaching a dog on a leash. That's very, you know, he's just a strong willed person. I've and, always found him a wonderful person to be with at all times. I've, <laughs> but you always wonderful to me. But Jay with no filter, Jay Moore walks up to him and sits down on another director's chair and shakes his hand and says great to meet you don listen i just had to ask you something before i got started today um you wrote blossom i mean like what were you thinking you created blossom Mm -hmm. i mean why are we here but blossom right (laughs) and don (laughs) this was a classic moment where don just calmly said jay And I'm paraphrasing. I live in a 17,000 square foot house in Hana that you can only get to by helicopter. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and he just got up and walked away. I'll, I'll never forget. That.
3: My favorite That's line brilliant. with Don, as I was getting a little older, I said, "Don, do you have any uh, advice about getting older?" He said,
1: "Bring money."
3: <laughs> Bring money. I give that to all the kids too. You know you that too, bit Jay? about Bring Don? Money. Jimmy, you'll,
1: you'll uh, <clears throat> correct me if I'm wrong. We had a network guy who was uh, giving him notes on a show. It was the first time he ever gave notes on a show. It was, he was new to the show. And he says to, he says to Don after the run through, I have some notes. And Don says, OK, but just remember, this is the first time I've ever heard you give notes. So everything from now on in your life, I'm going to judge on what you say right now. And the guy said, I'm, I'm not, no, I'm, I'll wait till later. He says, Wasn't that? Remember Bob? <laughs> remember? <laughs> he, just, he just said, forget it. He, <laughs> sca- he scared him right off Oh, yeah. OK, yeah. but remember, What you say now, I remember for the rest of my... One of the
0: things, Jim, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but the first time I ever saw you was just in my apartment. I was watching The Tonight Show, and I saw you and your comedy team partner, Jonathan Schmock, Schmock and Valalie, and I saw a routine that I'll never forget to this day. And I always loved Clever... But what's fascinating is you guys did a routine that was clever but was like a circus kind of thing when you did King Kong washing Sounds the dishes. King Kong Sounds washing great. the dishes. Yes. King Kong washing the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah.
3: You know, we when John and I met at NYU and <laughs> um and uh you know, we did some sketches together and got some laughs and then I was living in Manhattan and I went to a party at uh kenny kramer's house kenny kramer was (laughs) the real the real yeah yeah Yeah. i I lived in the same building as kenny kramer and uh larry david lived across the hall from kramer and we had a party once at kramer's house and i and i met rick overton and uh and overton and sullivan and they were in a comedy team and they did this you know and they said come on over to the improv and watch us And they were amazing. They were absolutely amazing. I'd never seen anybody use mic work. I mean, this is like 1980, 81, you know, know, the way these guys did mic work. And uh, really, you know, those two guys inspired, you know, me and John to get back together again and and to do that stuff. And, you know, we just, you know, back in those days, there were like a couple of clubs to work at. We worked at Catch a Rising Star and the Comic Strip and the Comedy Cellar. And, you know, we just got lucky. We just got this one. We went to this one 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 club. I think it was called Sweeney's downtown. downtown yeah. yeah. We opened it up and we got an amazing review from uh, from the Daily News. And that it all of a sudden we were flo- we were out here. And- but
0: it's famous that Carol Liefer was seen 23 times before Jim McCauley gave her The Tonight Show. How many times was Schmock and Valley seen before they got The Tonight Show? Well, um Okay, I'll brag. 21.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. He had it perfect. I can't believe he screwed up.
3: <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I, I You know, it, it, Warren Littlefield Sauce, us who, who, when he was a vice president. We auditioned for the first time for Brandon Tartikoff at the Comedy Store. Wait,
0: you auditioned for The Tonight Show? For Not for the, the Tonight Show, for, for an overall deal at NBC. And for those audience members that are too young to remember, Brandon Tartikoff was a brilliant... Brilliant, brilliant network president—the youngest network president in history.
3: Right. Yeah, and this is like 1983, yeah. and we got there, and I'd never been on, been on stage at the Comedy Store before, and uh, they, they were seeing two acts, uh, and. Uh, but Richard Pryor was in the audience. I mean, Richard Pryor was performing, and he was sitting in the audience. And there was a misunderstanding, and they went to uh, to Mitzi, and they said, "Is there any chance that you know Brenda Tartikoff is here with Warren Littlefield and Joel Thurm to see two acts?" And, and Joel Thurm was a tremendous casting director yeah, at the time. Ca- yeah, really. d- yeah, yeah. Taxi, and uh, I think I think maybe Cheers mm-hmm. too. But uh, uh, but the, but Pryor was sitting in the back, right? So we, you know, so the first act goes up. And uh, but Pryor, Pryor is, but he has a split focus because there's a small room. We're in the original room. And Pryor's in the back. And then we go up and we do our bit. And we do okay, but, you know, Pryor's in the back. Everyone right. wants Pryor to go on. You know, right. who, who are these, you know, guys? And Pryor goes up and uh, s- s- says, you know, you know what? He says, right to Tartikoff. He goes, you know, nobody should have to follow those guys. And the other actor
0: was Jim Carrey. It's all true. And we all got big deals the next day. And that's how we flew out to Los Angeles. Tell me where you first met this guy and to stay friends for this long in this business when so many things pry people apart. I want you to tell me where you first met and how you have formed this relationship that has stood the test of time when, let's face it, many people in your lives have gone by the wayside. Well, Kevin
2: and me, were, we were roommates right. in New York. <laughs> we shared an
1: apartment in New York. And, an apartment uh, that John Mendoza got us.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's right. We live we live below John Mendoza and, yep. and, and
0: John Mendoza for the audience doesn't know he was an incredible stand up comedian. I remember he did a lot of edgy stuff. I remember he said this joke where he said, "I went down on some woman. I put my head up. I looked like a mad dog." Yeah. I remember that line. He would do all this dirty stuff without saying the word. You
3: can yeah. see all those jokes today. Yeah, uh, <laughs> John still yeah. does. Now he's. I think he's still <laughs> opening for Howie Mandel. You mentioned he, he opens for Howie Mandel all the time. So next time you see Howie, there's a good chance you're going to see John Mendoza too. We, so you buy know, your Howie I, tickets now because he's not. Rich enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's make another deal. Uh, Ron and Their I lived that's that great place uh, in the Queens. Yep, that was a great spot. We had to walk. We would take the subway home late there, late at night there, and walk from the subway down to our apartment by the river. It was one mile. And you had to walk past that, that great bakery that Christopher Walken's family owned. The and, and then the the be Christopher Walken family dogs. were murdered. It
2: right. His his parents were were murdered they they ran this bakery and we'd get hot rolls yeah hot rolls for the for the walk through the a warehouse district where there was a pack of wild dogs packs of wild <laughs> dogs that would, would chase you that liked rolls and then at night on the rooftops yeah cats would fight and fuck Yeah, yeah, all night long, and if you've never heard cats fight or fuck, sounds like my marriage.
3: (laughs) There, and your name is Cats, so actually, yeah, (laughs) it was cats fighting and fucking, Um, (laughs) referring
2: to you, but you know, uh, and and the most horrifying noises, right, And, and and it would be all night long, and and now. You know, forty years later, I find out it was you and your wife.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the Walkins being murdered. So, but how did you? But how did you become roommates? How
1: did you know each other?
2: Through, uh, we met through through the guy we were talking about before, Rich Scheidner. Rich Scheidner. because yeah. we all
1: started in Washington D.C. a little club in D.C. Yeah, well, Brookman's, it was a country western bar in uh, south in south. West uh, was it South or Southwest it was, it was yeah, Washington south
2: East I think they they I, there used to be a, a, a guy a journalist that was that did a story about stand-up and they got hooked on stand-up named built Bill Thomas yeah and he had a great joke about he said if you want to get to this club all you got to do is drive down Constitution Avenue until you're really afraid. <laughs> Park and go into the building right. and you're there. Crazy little club.
1: But Rich was there. Wrong. Now,
0: Jim, you weren't there, were you? Lewis, nope. Black,
1: was, Lewis Black was there. Yeah. TV Mulroney, but Louis Black.
0: Lewis Black was the first
2: one.
1: Yeah. So we all started out there and knew each other from that. And then we, reconven- we sort of got together again in New York. I went to New York and found Rich, and, and I uh,
2: lived. I, I lived in Louis, Louis Black's apartment with him and Mark Lynn Baker.
1: Wow, wow. Mark Lynn Baker from uh, Perfect Strangers. Yeah. yeah, my favorite year, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah and my favorite
2: year, and they they shared a place on on St Mark's Place down in the in the East Village, and uh, and they let me stay there, and I got I got Mark hooked. On X-Men comic books Right So he let me stay They gave me a room there Because You know It was
1: like well, He's yeah, yeah. Yeah. not
0: really hurting anybody <laughs> <laughs> you know? And Jim How did you meet Kevin For the first time At the improv right Right Yeah In yeah. Yeah.
1: the door of the
3: improv Yeah he was the doorman At the improv And you know And uh, he was a, uh, You know it it takes a little while to get Kevin to be on your side. You know what I mean? You actually have to make him laugh, you know, and you have to go through a wall of, you know, well, it's a, it's a little bit of a wall back then. I think, I I think that when the three of us were sitting at the table, at the improv, i mean, you know, I forget, but somebody, I think Leno called us, Oh, the viper's nest over there. We were mean, you know, we were mean guys. We were three mean guys, three young, mean guys. And we thought we were hot shit because we were 32 and making, you know, enough money to, you know, rent an apartment doing yeah. comedy so you know
1: so the doorman at the improv and getting free hamburgers oh, and yeah. cab fare
3: it's like being in the mob when you're making money yeah. doing yeah. comedy it's like I'm a made man you know oh, look at the suckers out there you know, yeah. paying to see me oh those yeah. fools i we all
1: came out here yeah I used to say
3: yeah. I got in the stand up
2: as because I went into the witness protection program <laughs> and it was the one place where I would never be found <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's funny.
0: I don't know who wrote the joke on action but Buddy Hackett goes off to kill the writer Jared Paul in the show action and he has him up against a wall and he's going to kill him and he lets him go, and Jared Paul says something like, "Well, what are you going to tell everybody? I mean, you're supposed to kill me." He says, "I'm going to tell you that you, I wish I could do the Buddy Hackett. I mean, I'm going to tell everybody else that you signed with the William Morris Agency, right. <laughs> and then they'll know you will never be seen again." I will guarantee
3: <laughs> you that is a Don Rio joke right down the line. That is yeah. Don Rio. My favorite Buddy Hackett joke that I just kind of remembered I wrote. Uh, we gave, he had he had a big long monologue. You know, it was to make Jay feel good about himself or something, and uh, he tells his story about during the war, uh, Korean War. He, you know, was an accident. he Had one of his his balls were shot off. He only had one one testicle, and uh, as he went through life, he, you know, you know, ups and downs. He goes, I could have said this is a terrible thing that happened to me, but when I look down, I like to think of that nut sack as half full. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a good one, I and to and, and be able because that was like the last. Thing Buddy Hackett really did, yes. and to have to have like you know a but to have Buddy Hackett do a gag because you yeah. know he's just you know he he was an icon you know I was yeah. like you know he, in
0: 1953 he was making 175 thousand a week in Vegas unbelievable
3: wow. unbelievable with, the, with the, the money that these guys made and you you know you're, you're thinking you know now but no no and it really stopped in Vegas around the 70s and he
0: did the first two HBO specials Buddy did I believe in 75 and 76 hey. Hated that old prick
2: <laughs> hated his guts didn't write one line for him out of 13 episodes I wouldn't write a joke for him if he held a gun to my head and Chris Thompson the late Chris Thompson did once hold a gun to my head and I still didn't write a joke for buddy Hackett because he pulled a gun on me when I was a young stand-up and me Bill Maher and Jack Cohen who became the head writer of the Tonight, the Tonight Show. and
0: with Jay Leno. For Jay.
2: And we went and saw Buddy Hackett's act, and there's a tradition that if you send a note, your comic, a young comic, the older comic, has to have you, invite you to their dressing room after the show. Hmm. So the three of us go to the dressing room after the show, and he opens the door, and he's wearing a robe, and a speedo the robe (laughs) is open and he's got a bottle of vodka in one hand and a gun in the other hand (laughs) and he's obviously shit face drunk and we the three of us sit on a couch in his dressing room and he starts telling us how lenny bruce stole every piece of material he ever did (laughs) and i said well do one and 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 he he goes what what are you talking about do one I said, well, you're saying, I, I go, the, the 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 palladium bit. Right, yeah. I go, that might be his most, Lenny Bruce's most famous piece of material. I go, yeah. do a little bit of that. Because I, I, I have a tough time believing that Lenny Bruce stole <laughs> every piece. Of, I mean, I just watched your act. Yeah. And it's hard for me to, I was a loud mouth little asshole too. <laughs> so, and I said, it's hard for me to believe that that and this guy had a gun in his hand.
1: And I said,
2: I don't believe that you wrote that buddy that Lenny Bruce stole all his material from you. Yeah. Do one bit. And he started the, the play. And I remember that one. <laughs> and and I go, you don't remember it because you didn't write it. It wasn't yours. It was Lenny Bruce's and you're a right. fucking liar. Yeah. And he, he goes, get up. And he points the gun at the three of us and he has the bodyguards come in and they grab us. And this is... And Bill Maher, who even before he was famous, acted like a famous guy. Right. He always acted like he was really famous. And he couldn't believe it because they threw us in the alley behind the (laughs) club in Atlantic City. They literally physically... Threw us into an alley. Wow.
3: Well, thank God he didn't remember you on action. Yeah, you're lucky that your nutsack isn't half full. You know what I'm saying? That's be, a callback. <laughs> 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 now, before I let you two go, when I finish the interview with him, I want to publicly to... say how much we love Kevin Rooney. Oh, that's me. all. That's all. Kevin Rooney is our, he's our light. He's the wind that yeah, we, that we, that, that, we that, that we, yeah. But, but this is the last question <laughs> I want to ask
0: you guys, because this is, to me, the greatest challenge. And I asked Adam McKay this question. Question: When he did the movie that he won the Academy Award with, and now I'm forgetting the name of the movie, The Big Short, and he's got that role, but he knows so many great people. There's so many great comedian actors who would want that role, from Will Ferrell to Sandler, who can do dramatic acting. Jim Carrey can do dramatic acting. Carell can do it, but he only can choose one. People see the movie, they're like, well, I think I could have done that. So when you guys all have gotten...
1: Every time I see Ben Blue in a movie, I think that. Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow. We are aging ourselves big time tonight, folks.
1: <laughs> Here's a
3: reference.
0: Aristotle's a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> but you guys have worked on separate jobs and brought each other into jobs. Sure. But there's times when you work on a show... And you don't bring Jim in or you don't bring Ron in. And do you ever feel like, oh man, they're gonna say, hey man, if you'd have brought me in, I could have made an extra 100, or 200, or $300,000. You didn't bring me in, you brought that guy and you don't really like. And I feel shitty about it. Were there times when you questioned each other's decisions on bringing people in and not bringing people in?
3: Well, I was never in a position to bring people in. You
0: had influence.
3: You I had, you you know, had you know, influence. You had know, influence, but at the end of the day, there's always, you know, well, you, you did know. Bring me. In. I brought. I brought. I, I brought him you in, got in me
1: and then <laughs> television writing. When I knew other people, like you're saying, other people who were on shows that never did that, never reached out to me and said, give this guy, I said, here's a funny guy, you want to bring him into the show, or did. Jimmy did that. Jimmy brought me in and got me a writing career. Well, it, it, okay, it, it,
3: Tommy? Oh, Tommy, I love it. You made me look good. Uh the early, you guys yeah, actually gave Ron, me a job. Ron, Ron, you know, Ron, Ron got me my first Writing job on Charles in Charge. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> we still get
2: checks. For Eight. Six cents. But that's, what I'm, cents but that's what I'm
0: saying. There are jobs that you guys have had influence where you hired each other, but right. there's also jobs. Where you didn't hire each other and you hired somebody else, did right. that create any animosity at all or none?
3: Um, no.
0: Yeah,
1: no. <laughs> I'm yeah. full
2: of it. I'm done. It's pouring out of every, 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 everything in me is bitter and furious yeah. about about this. What a that, that question to me. Ninety nine percent of my career was writing shit for with. Shit writers <laughs> on shit shows yeah. for shit money. Oh wow! So you know, my first like three jobs, I made. I made you know a couple of million dollars, and then never again. And I because I always pissed somebody off because I, I had a and still do. I have a big fucking mouth, <laughs> and I shoot it off. You know, I just can't. You know be cool when, when it's time to just shut the fuck up. <laughs> Never could.
3: I had a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I, had I still do. Hi, Tadis. That's my daughter. I
1: just, uh, I did not laugh enough at other people's jokes.
2: Oh, that's the other
1: thing. You know, in writing rooms, I, I think I was like, sit there and Brad Garrett said to me, well, Kev, you're hard to read. I don't know what whether you like anything or not. I guess I have a... I guess I have a default sour face or something. But if it's not really funny, I didn't laugh. I didn't learn how to didn't learn how to laugh at stuff that was bad.
3: I have the best fake laugh in the business.
1: <laughs> I
2: do. <laughs> 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 has the greatest fake laugh. Uh-
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin
1: and I have no fake laughs. No fake laugh. I didn't never learn how to do me that. Neither.
0: Tell me one holy shit, I can't believe that this happened story in your career for the audience. I I I don't want to
3: you know you know be the guy because I, I I really talk about it but uh, when when uh, I won an Emmy for for Arrested Development because that year it was for best script and we were going up two two of the other writers on our show got, also got nominated uh, Barbie Adler and uh, Brad Copeland and uh, so there's there were three from our show and the other shows that got nominated were the pilot for. Um, Desperate Housewives, which was great, and Mark Cherry, the guy who I'd worked with, and um, uh, whoever wrote the, uh, uh, probably Phil, uh, for the last episode of uh, Everyone Loves Raymond, and I thought that, you know, there's no way I, was, I, I would get, so that was a holy shit moment for me, because, you know, I, 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 I've never gone into this you know business thinking i would get anything you know i I remember once you know i was looking for a job and i had done golden girls and a couple of yeah some good credits under my belt but uh um I, I remember saying to my agent, uh, well, what about Frazier? And without even meet, missing a beat, you know, my agent said, oh, you're not smart enough for Frazier. <laughs> you know, like, they just know. That's it's like, I, go, I, I can fucking carry a wine guide with me too and he threw throw those words in there. It's just a formula. Uh, but, um, so I never really expected anything. I never expected any sort of recognition. I had given it up long ago. I was 50 when I, when, when, when I was, you know, you know, you know, Kevin got his, you know, when he was young and, you know, so, you know, well, you were younger. You were like 41, 42, yeah. So, you know, you just you, at one point, you kind of give up that go. So that was a very pleasant surprise. And um, that's the only time I've ever talked about that. So that was my holy shit moment. Thank awesome. you, Mitch Erwitz. Okay, yeah.
0: Mitch Hurwitz, the showrunner of yes. Arrested Development. Ron, what's your greatest holy shit moment story in your life in this business?
2: <laughs> All of it. You know, just yeah. the whole thing has been... Just one holy shit after another, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's either so bad or so good right. that it's all holy shit. I mean, sitting here is a holy shit moment because yep. I think after, with, along with Larry David, Kevin and Jimmy are, are two of, of the real actual comedy geniuses uh-huh. of the last four decades
1: so this interview aside yeah (laughs) (laughs) so what happened to us (laughs) (laughs) but but you know
2: so so even even this is 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 still a holy
3: shit after that i'd like to change my holy shit moment to What Ron just said. That's my holy shit moment. Finish talking to Rooney. We love you, Rooney. Thank Thank you for letting us barge in. You can take as much as you want out.
0: Thank you. you. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my blueprint for success, a -a one-of-a-kind, all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry I'll tell you all the stories all the philosophies give you all the great special guests and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand enhance and skyrocket your comedy career just go to barrykatz.com and click on blueprint for success To learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And as you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilledjfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp. What do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? I IKilledJFK.com. Check it out. All right. I want to go way, way, way back. Take me back to where you grew up, what your father and your mom were like, what the socioeconomic <laughs> dynamic was like, and what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business
1: okay well so lower middle class kid father was an editor and my mother was just a disgruntled housewife (laughs) and uh lived out in a little like a farming town in massachusetts what town in massachusetts it's called west newberry and it's up on the uh north shore of, of, of uh massachusetts near the border of new hampshire near plum island yeah i love plum island I used to walk on plum island all the time beautiful place to go over and uh make love in the dunes and get bitten by greenhead flies <laughs> 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 and uh and i there's a kind of a isolated kind of life though because i was a i lived in a little farm town about maybe 4,000 people so had my friend across the street but there was nothing you couldn't walk to like the magazine shops or store or anything like that so I kind of led a little isolated life as a kid but uh, uh, had no money went to college a couple of places went to like four or five different colleges the service and, you know whatnot but my father was always cracking jokes and tried to be funny and he was a clever guy and a good painter so I learned, I think I got a lot of my uh, sense of humor from the old man, but uh, and he turned me on to good literature. He was an editor, like I said, so there's a lot of books around the house all the time. But we didn't have, they did not like listen, like a lot of my friends, they got introduced to stand-up because their parents had comedy re- albums like uh, Bob Newhart or something like the that.
0: The Down Mind, which was my right. first uh, comedy album that I loved.
1: Right, but they didn't have that. So I, I would, I think I saw a couple of guys on, a t- on The Tonight Show that my father was laughing at. I can't remember who, but they were funny guys on The Tonight Show. But it never never occurred to me that that would be a job or that was something somebody did. It didn't, didn't, didn't occur to me that there was stand-up was a thing that people did or it, that it was an art form of some kind. Never knew that. So I didn't really get into that until... Uh, I was out of the service, and I was working in Washington D.C. And I was, you know, trying to—I was cracking jokes a little bit in my job. And the people that dared me to go do an open mic night there. That's where I met Rich Scheidner and Ron. And uh, that was at Dale Bookman's down there at the uh, in Anacostia.
0: How'd you do that first time up?
1: The first time up, I did okay. I got a couple of laughs, and I think I always thought if I had not gotten laughs the first time I got up, I never would have done it again. Because my impression was that the audience was a monolith, that the people you were actually talking to were just representative of the entire audience, and that you know that, that if they didn't like you, then no one would like you. So I got a couple of laughs. So I, so I got bit by the bug of getting the la- getting a couple of laughs. So I kept going. But if that first night had failed ter- terribly, I would never have tried it, and it would never have tried it again. That was in El Brookman's and. Uh, that was sort of fun to get a couple of laughs and then when you could go to new york when i went to new york and found rich at the improv there and got a job as a doorman there i started doing a doorman when chris albrecht was a doorman no chris albrecht had gone and uh this was after like jerry seinfeld was still around a little bit but then he left quickly too uh so it was kind of I i guess it was 1981 or so 1980. So, I started doing late night, uh, uh, when the a little little four or five minute set late night there, really late, to like crowds of you know four or five crowds, five or six people. This is the club at Forty Fourth and Ninth. Yeah, and then the the comedy boom kind of happened, and I got caught up in that, where you could make like I say, you could make fifty or a hundred bucks, you know, in some little club somewhere. So that was enough for me. All I needed was fifty or a hundred bucks a couple of times. What
0: kind of place were you living in in New York?
1: Well, we at that point it was sharing a uh, an apartment up up on 125th Street in Claremont with actual dirt coming out of holes in the wall downstairs down in the basement. You know, crappy little place, and you know, trying to just cage money to get enough to buy a chicken to split with my roommate, who was an old friend of mine from school. So I was living hand to mouth up there. I remember, my father came to visit once. He was so appalled at the uh, condition of my clothes in the apartment where i was living he bought me a pair of wingtips like they were magic shoes that if i could wear wingtips <laughs> like he wore lace up wingtips i could fly over all the dirt and poverty there and be safe like a magic carpet but uh yeah you did live in hand to mouth but i was happy with it because i made enough i just live within my means you know whatever you made in cab fare and little pickup gigs in new york you could patch together a little place to live and enough food, and of course in the clubs, you if you did a set, you would get a hamburger or something like so. You kind of keep it together like that. It was very, very, very hand to mouth, but I was happy with it because I was not doing what I didn't want to do, which was get up every day and put on a tie and do some kind of crappy job I didn't want to do. I really kind of, uh, I think, got into stand-up because I was avoiding, like an amoeba, I was, I was just moving away from heat. And how many years of that kind of
0: existence and living before you got your first break? Well, let's see. Uh,
1: I think that was 1980. And then creeping along uh, from one gig to the next and writing some jokes. Then in 85, I got The Tonight Show. So that broke things a little bit. Could make more money and better gigs on the road and put together enough money over the year to have a decent place to live. Got married for the first time in '83, and uh, I think it was about, I guess uh, four or five years, which is pretty good, actually. Looking back on it, I think you know five under you know under 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 six years is pretty decent. Could you tell our audience the
0: pressure of a stand-up comic doing the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson at that time, and and knowing that only six people had ever gone to the couch. After their first set on the Tonight Show, and knowing that he had those symbols, he would give you the OK sign, right. and that meant you were going to come back. But if he didn't do that, then you weren't coming back. So you didn't
1: know, yeah. Uh, I didn't know that only six people had going to the couch, and that was not my goal. I just wanted to get some laughs on the Tonight Show. That was that was that was a, a uh, pressurized situation. But I had I worked on it. I worked on the set. I knew what I was going to do. But it was funny. They knew they, the people at the Tonight Show, knew how much pressure you were under. Because I went out to my, you know, they show you, they sh- they pull the curtain apart and they show you. Here's the spot you want to go to when you get introduced. Go out there and stand on that spot, and then you'll come back through the curtain after the after your set's over and he, and, Car- and Carson gives you the thumbs up or not. You'll come back through the curtain. So I went out, I hit my spot, I did the set, it worked okay. I came back through the curtain. And the guy, the stagehand, was there to catch me because he came out of the lights, you know, into the dark behind the curtains. And I kind of fell forward a little bit at, at, because the, the uh, what do you call it, the pressure's over and the uh, release is so intense. When you come through the curtain into the dark, you're like, oh, my God, you fall forward a little bit. The guy was there to catch me because everybody does that, I guess. They come through the curtain. They know you're going to be so relieved you have a little bit of... You relax into the darkness a little bit. You could trip and fall so they're there to catch you coming through because everybody comes out of there. It's like being shot out of a gun, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the material, did it all work exactly the way you wanted it to or did some stuff, you know how sometimes you're doing a show... Uh, your first taping and because you're doing shows in the clubs for 17 people 30 people 100 people but on a television show you could deliver a line and they could start applauding for 15 seconds and you had a tag after that line you have to decide whether to do the tag
1: or not none of my material was so good that it screwed itself up (laughs) (laughs) um But the jokes did work. One joke in particular, I, 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 for anybody out there, I'm bald. So one of the jokes was to the audience, does this look familiar to you? And I turned my back to the audience and I pretended to be an old man driving a car, <laughs> which I reach up and adjust the rear view mirror and then wave them around, you know? <laughs> and I realized when I did the joke, I waved them around, I got a laugh. And I realized if I wave them around again, I got another laugh. So I could just start waving people around, and many times they laugh as I wanted. I just keep them waving my arm around, like "come around, come around, come around." Had to resist miming, getting out of the car, and you know, doing all kinds of all kinds of crazy shit. But uh, that joke worked well. None of the jokes failed to the point that I stumbled over them because you know, a lot of times a joke doesn't work, and you expect it to. It's like tripping over a log in the dark. <laughs> But none of that happened. So that was a good show to do. And Carson gave me the uh, thumbs up. And a friend of mine, Martin Olson, was there in the audience.
0: Just to let you know, Martin Olson was the piano player (laughs) Mm -hmm. at the Ding Ho Comedy Club in Inman Square, Cambridge, where comedy was almost probably born there with Barry Crimmins and Lenny Clark and Stephen Wright. And right. he'd play the piano Don Gavin Steve Don Sweeney Gavin. Yep. and so and he came out here and he was a writer out here still is but he wrote for didn't he write for children's animation and shows like that
1: yeah, Ren and I can't remember the, was it Ren and Stibby I can't remember but yeah, he's a wonderful guy really funny guy and he has a distinctive laugh a big bark ah, ah, a big big laugh so at the end of the show the Carson appearance, Carson said, and I also want to thank, uh, Kevin Rooney." and Marston goes, yeah, you can hear him in the audience. I got tape of it. You know, you can hear him going, yeah. And Carson, and Carson looks up and goes, yes, yes, we'll have him back. So he awesome. kind of, he kind of, that was Martin really kind of kicked that off.
0: Tell our audience the first time you bombed miserably or were you perceived that you did not do well on a television set? And you first can... time
1: I really bombed miserably, it must have been at dinner at my parents' house. <laughs> I think my father hit me. <laughs> no, he did not. Uh, miserable bombing. I, I've had some terrible, terrible bombs. I had one up outside of San Francisco. That was so bad, I ended up kicking the audience out of the club. <laughs> <laughs> I walked down into the audience and said, get the fuck, you're the worst people I've ever met. Get the fuck out of here. And I, I thought I was gonna get beaten up, but they actually got up and left. <laughs> Except for one, was one woman who'd been heckling me, who stayed behind and said, we, we paid to come in. I said, hey, I, I balled up a 20 and threw it at her and said, here, take this and leave. But I had a terrible, terrible set there. Following, like we were talking earlier, following an act I should not have had to follow. It was, it was very filthy and stupid and they ruined the audience. And I was trying to get them back, and the guy in the back says to me, he's got a big straw cowboy hat on. He goes, he says to me, "Hey, uh, hey, you a Jew?" <laughs> and I said, "No, I'm not. So what if I was?" He goes, "We put you in oven." <laughs> and the audience laughs. I said, "You know, you people are the lowest fucking people I've ever talked to. Get the fuck out of here." But I was bombing terribly. I felt better once they once they left. <laughs> wow, yeah, it was a bad bad bomb, but uh, yeah, I bombed a lot, um, not uh often because you know I did okay as a, in my career over over time, it was okay, but I bombed enough to know what it felt like it felt like and how difficult it is to. Uh, maintain your composure when you're bombing. You know, you can't get through, you can't find a way through, you can't find a subject that they're going to enjoy. You keep moving around and burning up jokes here and burning up jokes there and looking at the clock and going, Jesus, you know, I'm going through fuel like uh, this is not good. <laughs> I am going to be on the way down to the planet's surface.
0: Do you remember the moment that you said to yourself, "I'm never working a day job ever again"? Was that the Tonight Show set, or was it something
1: else? No, that was mowing Mr. Papawell's lawn <laughs> 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 when I was nine. <laughs> I think I did that not day job. I just said, "I'm not working."
0: No, but you were doing Another a game. lot of shitty jobs. You were a bartender. Yep. You did so many different crazy. you were a doorman. Yep. So when did you say, "I'm not doing a day job anymore"? What happened? As
1: soon as I saw the uh, light there with the, uh, oh, the.
0: hey everybody! Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on, just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
1: This is good, I can, I can make $25, $50 a week doing stand-up, I'm never working a day job again. And I had to make sure I didn't get uh, Bogged down in responsibilities that would make me work a day job again. You know, I knew my old for my old man that getting bogged down in uh, familial responsibilities would make you it would make it impossible for you in good conscience to pursue uh, a dream like uh, making money, doing something f- like telling jokes to people or art or anything like that. So I think that that must have been in 1980 one or two when the comedy boom was kind of happening. I got the door job at the Improv and I started doing sets at the Improv and started getting offers to do little clubs out in New Jersey. You know, they, what I called them trunk gigs where, because they, they, the guy would have a, his entire club in the trunk of his car. You know, he'd drive out to the gig with you and he'd open the trunk and he'd have a little sheet that said the Jim Balazzo show or something like that and, and he'd put it up where he'd have a big inflatable banana he'd hang on the wall and, <laughs> and call it a comedy club. <laughs> And you do your gig and then you pack the club back pack his club back into his trunk, deflate his banana and throw it back in the back seat. Then <laughs> you go back to New York. I think that's when I thought I don't have to do a day job anymore. I can just skirt along on here and see what happens here.'ll I'll try this, and see what happens.
2: six.
0: Six degrees of separation. All right, six degrees of separation i'm going to mention some names tell me what comes to mind could be a sentence oh. could be a story could be oh, okay. anything okay. all right judd apatow
1: a uh, wonderful guy a very uh accomplished comic and director of course and i knew him when he was young and uh, to watch his growth over time has been great and he's always been very uh i'll say complimentary to me and very nice and So I I really liked Judd a lot of sweet guy, talented guy, but he did mention me in uh, Funny People that he wanted the relationship between uh, Seth Rogen and Adam Sandler to reflect kind of his relationship he had with me. We never had that. It wasn't that deep, but I am really flattered that he thinks uh, that was the kind of relationship we had. Jay Leno. Uh, Wonderful guy. So generous jay and uh, supportive and hilarious i mean i watched him early on when i first met him do two and a half three hour sets just killing the audience he would stop to talk to them make them laugh just conversationally with them just as a break to give them a breath because the material was so powerful. And he really paints great word pictures. That was when I realized, you know, he puts together these word pictures that are jokes that are just funny to see in your mind. Damon Wayans. A really good guy, and he brought me along. And, and from, I knew him when he was uh, just starting out at the Improv in New York. Had a, had, had a good relationship with him there. And then he was uh, nice enough to bring me on to my wife and kids and kept me there for years. And I just came back from the apartment. He got me in France. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Don. Bill Maher. Really sharp guy, hardworking guy, funny, great political point of view. I think his uh, work ethic is really admirable. It was fun working with him. He was pretty uh, complimentary and... uh, a good laugh, you know he really gives it up on the laughs and he is he's happy when you're he's he's complimentary and he's great he's appreciative of you if you're giving him good material. Last
0: name, Johnny Carson.
1: Uh um, Carson was a a unique, one of a kind guy who he just really set the gold standard there for. You know the thing about Carson was I think his taste his personal taste informed his show to the point that the audience always knew anything on that show was going to be uh, worthy that Carson, if Carson liked it, it would be on the show. And there wouldn't be anything on the show that Carson didn't like. So he had a great way of marshaling his show, making his show something that he was proud of and the audience could rely on it. So it it was like a, I guess it was, what they call it now, they call it a brand or something, but he was a very sharp, very sharp guy and obviously uh, cr- influenced a lot of comedy. Influenced a lot of comedy. You know, Bill, Bill Maher used to say when he was a kid, he would watch The Tonight Show and do the jokes the next day at school. He would write them down and you know perform them. So I think you can, you can look at Bill and see that a lot of his body posture a lot of his with the hands, the way he way he works oh, with his hands. Hand. clap the hands together at the end of a joke, the way he gestured and stand. He they're also both of Johnny and Bill are both kind of diminutive guys, and they posture. His, his his body language is very much like Johnny's. I think when he was a kid, he was watching that a lot, obviously, and he imprinted it. And he uh, he took it. He didn't take it. He just imprinted it, and it became a. So Carson's style, I think, was very. Uh, He influenced, He's very influential. So, yeah, and I liked it, he was nice. I didn't speak to him much. The couple of, the few times that he did the show, he did the show five times. The last time I finally went over to sit, you know, at the desk and I had done a joke about my father and he said something about your father is my age. I said, there's something, I didn't miss the opportunity. I I, I was, the audience clapped for, for, for John. I missed the opportunity to make a comeback to him about, it is weird, you and your father you and my father are the same age and i look older than you (laughs) but i didn't get it out (laughs) but he was he was a nice guy he was pleasant
0: your proudest moment in show business
1: um winning the Emmy was a lot of fun for politically incorrect for no for dennis miller live did you win one for politically incorrect and one no, for Dennis no? No, Bill has not. have not. That the show has not won. I don't think. So you won the two Emmys for Dennis Miller Live, yeah. And that show got on a run because I left. Uh, but they won another two or three after that. So it was a. It was just a. It was a good show and. I think it was in a groove there with the Academy. Now, some people, I think they, the shows get into a groove and they get voted in every year like Frasier was just all, all the time. Weren't you involved with creating the rants or something around oh the yeah. rants? Yep. Could you talk about that? Well, we went to Las Vegas to write. Uh, this, the writing staff, Dennis and the whole staff, went to Vegas one week to write, get ready for the show and I wrote a long what was kind of a, supposed to be a joke kind of but it was a long observation about something that blew up into the rants and at the end I said I don't want to get off on a rant here but and did this thing and at the end I would say of course I could be wrong but I doubt it I put that on the end so I created the whole uh, template for the rants and then we were going to do a book together the rants but Dennis was impossible to work with so I backed out of it but he still did the book still did the book yeah I should have just hung in there. because It was already signed deal. It was gonna be The Rants by Dennis Miller with Kevin Rooney's Because The back, the back, the first, uh, the first issue of The Rants book, on the back there are some blurbs, you know, to sell the book. And all of those blurbs are directly out of my typewriter. But, you know, Dennis was a very smart guy and he did elevate The Rants. He would add his stuff in and change words and do things and bring them in. And, of course, the other writers uh, also were contributing. So, And there were some great writers on there. Rick Overton, Leah Krinsky, Ed Driscoll, a bunch of guys, Eddie Feldman. So uh, the Rants book was not all mine, but the, the, the initial template was when we were in Vegas. When we read that in Vegas, Dennis went, oh, these are the, the Rants, say uh, we've got to do this. But when you stopped, when you backed out of the book,
0: was it a thing where you didn't get credited properly? I heard a rumor once that possibly you or somebody else was so upset at Dennis that they slashed his tires
1: oh uh this was the the crew on the show the Tribune show the Dennis Miller show the crew at the last after the last show they slashed the tires on his car yeah I don't know who it was but somebody did yeah after the last show because he was a he was difficult to work with the crew like the crew, the guy who, uh, Scott, his name was, who was, the, he had held the cue cards. Every day, you would go into the dressing room with Dennis and run the cue cards. He would show them the cards, and he would run through it every day. And then with the show, Scott would show him the cue cards during the show. So at the last show, he's like, "Hey, hey, cue card guy. He never did learn his name you know hey cue card guy he was with him for six months so he was kind of like the, the the crew was not a huge fan so I think that's what happened I heard that later that the crew after the last episode had slashed the tires on his car <laughs> that was fun that was a weird you know show business people especially the the stars are so it's an odd group we were at that at place and they, we were right next to uh, I think it was the dating game and Chuck Woolery, remember Chuck Woolery? Of course. Chuck Woolery was the host. So one day I go out into the trash bin to do something. I see the cue cards from the dating game in there. And one of the cue cards was, and this is what I love this, one of the cue cards was in big letters, Hello, my name is Chuck Woolery. <laughs> I said, You need a cue card? Hello, my name is Chuck Woolery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level
1: well let's see my biggest disappointment was that I did not get an HBO special and have a chance to really uh, maybe get to theaters you know where I could do a uh, be have a draw and get a little bit more it'll get better known and um just become a stand-up comic but i put like i said earlier i pushed that aside pretty quickly i wasn't a wasn't a wasn't a lifelong dream of mine or anything like that so when that didn't happen i was disappointed but i wasn't crushed by it and i was uh i guess the other disappointment is i wrote a couple of pilots that didn't get on the air you know they got made but didn't get a chance to uh, see the light of day one with John Caponera that I kind of liked and I wish that it had gotten a chance to be on the air. That was the, that you were talking earlier about with the network executives all sit together and watch the shows and pick the shows. That show tested well with audiences, but they didn't pick it. They picked instead the single guy and... With Jonathan Silberman. Yeah, and Union Square and Caroline in the City and some other other shows, shows that all failed. And I thought, shit, I would have liked to get a chance to have that pilot on the air, you know? Because now I can pretend that if it had got in the air, it would have been great, but right. uh, you, know, you never know. You, you like to think, well, if, I only, if only the world could see my genius, soon they won't be laughing at me.
0: Last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a remote area in a room in a barn somewhere right. Right. where his father lost all the savings right. and who has like the dollar and a dream to go for their goal? And how do they get to have the kind of career, not only as a stand-up comedian, but as a writer in talk and sitcoms?
1: Well, you might as well try. (laughs) You have no idea if it's going to work. It is that cliche of just keep doing it and uh, whatever it is that you enjoy, just do, do what you enjoy. I guess I did what I like to do, hang around, talk to people, and get a few laughs. And I did not do what I didn't want to do. So I just refused and found some way to make ends meet without doing what I didn't want to do. And if you uh, are unhappy with where you're at, just do something else and keep pushing at it. The door will open. I thought show business felt like you're on the outside of a big room and you walk around the outside and keep pushing and keep pushing, and somewhere there'll be a door that'll pop open. And when the door does pop open, go in. And then don't lean on the wall. <laughs> go in and stay away from the walls because the door will open and pop you out. So when, when, the, when the magic door opens, go in, keep moving forward and just keep taking work, any work that, any work that, that you can, take it, stay in the room and just keep, keep going forward. Keep taking the jobs and don't get uh, comfortable and lean on the wall, you'll fall out. I don't really know. I don't really know how I got here but I was nice to get here. I look around here I think this is amazing. like John like Ron was saying earlier this is the holy shit moment ago. I'm up here in this house and uh I always wanted to have a sports car and I do. Always wanted to marry a beautiful woman and I did. I got my little dogs, got great friends, funny friends. Got some shrubbery. <laughs> <laughs> and a glass of water. And it's been good seeing you again, Barry. You're not pushing that Ferrari around anymore. Cool. I, no, met, I met Barry and every time I'd see Barry, he was pushing the Ferrari. <laughs> pushing it into a parking place in front of the Improv or pushing it out of a parking place in front of the Improv. Hey, Barry, nice Ferrari. It was, like, it was about as useful to him as a charm on a bracelet. <laughs> What are you taking? What are you you driving today, Barry? I'm driving the little pig on my bracelet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, this has been really amazing. Thank you so much for taking so much time. It's great seeing you, and you are always somebody who always were good to me, and I really appreciate it. I have so much respect for you. Thank you. It's
1: great to see you, and I'm glad glad you feel that way. Thank you. You're in the minority. (laughs) (laughs) Doubtful. Okay, I'm going
0: to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message and one of these people will be a lucky winner and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions or else if they're out of town, out of state or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on JP3145, May 29, 2019. The heading reads wow, one star. <laughs> And the comment they wrote is, How is it possible for someone to talk so slow? Increasing the speed two times sounds like how any normal person should talk. All right. Well, thank you very much, JP3145, for the constructive criticism. I am grateful and you are a winner. And as you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing jfk from the grassy knoll this is a guy who spent 50 years in prison just got out we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews along with interviews with five of the greatest jfk assassination experts in the world once you watch these videos your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? i killed jfk.com check it out and here's a preview of the next very special episode mike ward
2: a comedy career
3: starts whenever you start doing comedy and it ends when you die so just remember some people it takes a couple years and they become huge other people it takes forever just uh just don't give up don't give up uh have confidence uh believe in yourself and uh listen to everyone but don't do what everyone says
0: as always this has been industry standard with me barry katz and if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends
2: you get Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamer they have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own down in the valley, Fortune a fortunate.
3: Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for
2: your support and have a great day.